wonderful to see you guys this morning. So fun to have you. My name's Tony. I'm the lead pastor in this little adventure here we call Wellspring. Now, one of the things we're going to do right now is if you are in elementary school, uh, teacher Jeannie is right there. Uh, Why don't you guys gather with the teachers um, and they will lead you to your classes. And if you are in middle school, uh, Gary, raise your hand. All the middle schoolers that want to hang out with other middle schoolers, Gary's back there. He was just raising his hand. You can go with him. He's going to lead a little group for you guys. One of our hopes is to really create community among the middle schoolers and then the high schoolers. So high school is Charlie. He's going to raise his hand back there. If you're in high school, you're going to go with Charlie. Uh, We're going to have a time to hang out together. You guys can get to know each other a little bit. Thank you, guys. So fun to see you all. Uh, All the kids going, Lord be with you. So again, my name's Tony. Uh, we're journeying through the gospel of John. Uh, God's been, I don't know, pretty cool revealing himself through the gospel of John. We've learned a lot about who Jesus is. And this morning, uh, I want to start with an analogy as we begin in chapter 5. More of a personal story, really. So uh, as you can tell, uh, I played college football. Uh, always gets a laugh every time, like without exception. So I played college football, and um, one of the things that was different about high, going from high school to college is that people were way stronger, uh, like crazy stronger than when I was in high school. Like, I thought I was pretty strong, uh, and then I watched this guy named Matt Struess, who is, uh, we called him Man Mountain. Uh, he was like 6'5 and enormous. One day, he took my buddy, uh, Mark Mathis, who weighed about 280 at the time, and grabbed him by his face mask and started spinning him around like a rag doll. And I remember one time we were in the locker room. I don't remember what led to this, but Man Mountain comes up to me and he just grabs my arms. And literally, I still remember, this is, you know, 15 years later, I remember just how powerless I felt in that moment. I felt like, you know, a toddler in the arms of a bodybuilder. It was just like, I, I just could not do anything. Now, I share this sort of as a silly and humorous way to dive into, I think, in our world and in our lives, many of us have had that experience of powerlessness. You know, whether it's sickness, tragedy, uh, just in work, you just get to this place where you're just like, I wish I had the intelligence or the skill or the strength to navigate this, but literally I am like trapped in the arms of Man Mountain, unable to move, not sure what to do. And when we look in today at chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, we're going to see how Jesus brings life into a situation where this person feels trapped and powerless. This is how the text reads. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jews went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been there an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me that said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, in this text, in John, it can basically be subdivided into three sections. The first is the actual healing itself, verses 1 through 9. The second, 10 through 13, is the community's response to the healing. And then Jesus sort of does a follow-up at the very end in verses 14 and 15. Now, one of the things I think we want to start with is very at the, right at the beginning, begins with this context of a feast. So Jesus has gone from Capernaum or somewhere up in Galilee down to uh, Jerusalem, and it's one of three pilgrimage festivals in Israel, Tabernacles, Pentecost, uh, and Passover. The journey, uh, if you see the map up here, is from Capernaum's likely the home base of Jesus down to Jerusalem. So that's about 86 miles. That's about walking from here to Mountain View via the 101. That's a trick, right? Now, Jesus does this a number of times in the Gospel of John. Uh, what we see here, though, uh, is Jesus goes. There's now, you have to imagine, this is like, if you live in PG or have been in this area a bit, have you ever been to like Feast of Lanterns and it's like crazy crowded up there with the, the fireworks and stuff? Imagine that everywhere. Lots of people. And so it's within this crowded context of a feast to Jerusalem that Jesus meets a man at a temple pool. This is another just uh, screen of the temple. Uh, It'll give you a sense of in the northeast corner, uh, that's the pool of Bethesda. So imagine the temple, sort of this rectangle, and that top right, uh, you have the sheep gate, and you have this pool up there. And that's where Jesus encounters him. It's interesting, though, because archaeological evidence that's been surfaced shows that this site wasn't just used by uh, people of the Jewish faith. Actually, the Greeks had also dedicated this temple to the son of Apollo, Apollo, sorry, uh, Asclepius, who is the god of healing. So this actually is an interesting site where the Greeks believed healing would happen and the Jews gathered there as well. So it's in this context that Jesus approaches a man at a pool. This man has been there 38 years. What's interesting though, right? If you sort of pay attention, Jesus' initial question is, do you want to be healed? It's like, duh. And yet there's something beautiful here. Often people of privilege and power go into a setting and they see, obviously this is your need, and then they start solving for it. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just doesn't assume, hey, this is what you need. He says, What are you gathered here for? What are you gathered here for? And the man explains his pride, right? For 38 years, he can't walk, and he tries to get to this pool, and he can't make it there, right? Because the way this pool healing works, according to tradition, is every so often those waters would bubble up. And the first person to make it into the bubbly water would get healed. So it's this like race or this competition for the bubbles. You know, it's like my kids, the bubble bath is going. It's like whoever's in there first, right? 
This guy says, there is no one to help me. He's been here 38 years, and no one has helped him get in that pool first. Can you imagine the loneliness of that experience? Laying there by yourself, the thing you want more than anything in the world is a few steps away, and you cannot get there before the others. Right, I started with this sort of silly story of Man Mountain, but this is infinitely more trapped, isn't it? This is how Jesus responds to him. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now in those two verses are actually packed a lot of stuff. On first sort of glance, you might think, okay, okay, healing, Sabbath, okay, got it, next. But actually there's a lot going on here. This phrase, get up, is actually the sort of most used phrase of resurrection and what the resurrection power of God is like in the New Testament. So John is actually drawing on a phrase in Greek that sort of alludes to God actually raising Jesus from the dead, the life-giving power of God at work in the world. This man had been sitting by a pool waiting for this Greek God to come and heal him. And in one instant, the life-giving power of God shows up and brings him what he wants, what he longs for, what he needs. Second, you know, you're wondering, so who cares? He picked up his mat. It's the Sabbath, right? And we realize in a minute, people get upset at Jesus for this. This is why. So on the Sabbath, there are certain things you can and cannot do. You can't kindle a fire. You can't walk certain distances. And some people think in this instance, what is most problematic for the Jewish community is that Jesus says, pick up your mat. And the thing you can't do on the Sabbath is bear a burden, especially before one of the gates. This is what Jeremiah says in chapter 17. This is what the Lord says, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I have commanded your ancestors. Right? So they're picking up on this and saying, hey, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be carrying this mat. Now, for us, that might just feel sort of silly. It's just like, get over yourself, you know? But if we enter a little bit into their culture and their experience, right? On the seventh day, God rested. And they take this idea of we're creatures created in God's image. We're going to rest with God. Also remember, they've been exiled. One of the reasons they've been exiled is they didn't listen to what God had to say. So now they're a little bit anxious. They're like, well, I don't want to mess up here. We don't want, you know, at least we're in our hometown. Rome's still over us, but at least we're in our hometown. Maybe we're going to get kicked back to Babylon again if we don't keep these rules. Then we get into, you know, part two and them asking about carrying the mat. One of the things that really surprises me, though, is they don't, they don't say anything to the man about, hey, I noticed you're walking. That's awesome. <laughs> like nothing. You notice that? All they care about is, what are you doing with this map, Matt? It's almost implied like, I'd rather you be lame for another 38 years than stand up and be healed and carry that mat out of there. It's pretty interesting too, though, in this moment, you notice that Jesus doesn't give him a litmus test? Like he meets this guy at a pool and he's not like, all right, give me, let's do your character assessment. 
All right, let's do your sort of, uh, you know, godly quotient. There's no test, there's no exam, there's no quiz. The healing power of God comes to this guy, and this guy doesn't even remember Jesus' name. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to get your act together, and then I'm going to come and heal you. It's before he even knows anything about who this guy is, the grace of God comes upon this guy, and he experiences transformation by the power of God. Part one, part two, and then part three, Jesus finds this guy at the temple. Kind of like a checkup, you know. It's like, so how's it going? You know, the first thing he says is this. He's like, see, you're well. It's like, look at you. You're looking great, you know. Moving about, all nimble. And then he says this interesting comment, which I think it deserves unpacking. He says this, sin no more that nothing, nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I think this can be a little confusing, So in first century in antiquity, often people correlated tragedy and sickness with like sinfulness or behavior. So Jesus, and I just want to say that is not what Jesus is doing here, right? There's a number of instances in the New Testament when Jesus disconnects these things. One time in the gospel of Luke in chapter 13, there's this question these people ask, hey, so this tower falls on this bunch of Galileans. Who was worse? Were they worse sinners because of that? And Jesus is like, dude, you guys are so judgmental. They're no worse sinners than you guys are right now, right? In chapter 9, he says this. This is just a few chapters forward. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message, I think, gives a great translation. He says this. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for blame. Right? This isn't about blame. You're asking, you're like totally off here. He says, there is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines, while night falls. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. Right? So he meets this man at the pool And later on, he's going to say, you know, hey, it's not about whether he sinned or someone else sinned, but he is, yeah, there is sin in the world, and it does have consequences. But that is not what he's trying to say here. I think what he's trying to say is that, yeah, sin and negative consequences are correlated in the world. And I think we get this intuitively. If you lie all the time, people stop trusting you. Right? There there is connection. If you steal things all the time, people do not trust you with their stuff. Like we get that, I think, on an intuitive level. And this is sort of an ethical approach. But actually sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is not primarily ethical. Did you know that? It's not primarily about whether you stole something or whether you lied that one day. Sin primarily actually is in, with, operates within a different frame. So if you're familiar with sort of the Old Testament, actually the primary metaphor of sin is to miss the mark. It's kind of this archery term. There's a bullseye right there. Do I hit it or am I shooting over here? Well, if I shoot over there, I miss the mark. We use sort of in this place, we use a metaphor or a a frame. It's a mathematical frame. It's called centered set. So the idea is Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle. The question is, are you moving closer or are you moving farther away? Jesus and his kingdom are the center. Are you aligning your heart and your life with that center and moving towards it? Or have you picked another center? 
right? Like, have you decided you're the center? Tim Keller has this great quote. He says this, In ancient times, it was understood that there was a transcendent moral order outside the self built into the fabric of the universe. If you violated that metaphysical order, there were consequences just as severe as if you violated physical reality by placing your hand in the fire. The path to wisdom was to learn to live in conformity with this unyielding reality. Modernity reversed this. Instead of trying to shape our desires to fit reality, we now seek to control and shape reality to fit our desires. So basically, in a gospel framework, Jesus says, go, sin no more. Otherwise, the worst things are going to happen to you. Basically, what he's saying is, hey, when you submit your life to me and my kingdom, you're going with the grain of the universe. Have you ever run your hand across a... a, a, stumbling there, right? (laughs) My wife always laughs. I can always pick out her laugh every time. When you run your hand with the grain of a piece of wood, you don't get splinters. When you go against the grain, what happens? Your hand gets all jacked up. Right? When you put yourself at the center of the universe, this is not how God created things, people to thrive and to live. Can bad things happen? Sure, tragedy can strike. It's kind of like, think about just nutrition. It's like, yeah, if you eat well, you tend to live longer. You tend to feel better. You tend to be healthier. You know, there's basically no physician on the planet that will say that's not true. But can you die at an early age? Yes. It doesn't mean, though, that our bodies don't thrive and do better when we eat well. And I think Jesus is saying something like that here. Right? When we turn to our story in mind, I think Jesus is saying something like this to the man at the pool. Look, you've received life through me. You're healed. It's awesome. Now, listen, right? Don't sin. Don't go back to the pool thinking that some Greek God is going to heal you. Remember, I am the one who gave you life. I am the one who healed you and restored you. Don't put your hope and your life into another center, into another place. Put it in me. I think that's kind of what's going on in this passage. We see God come into the hopelessness of a man's situation, a person trapped. We see a bunch of people get all caught up in the rules and sort of what's happening, and we'll deal with that more next week as chapter 5 unfolds. And then we see Jesus saying to this guy, hey man, align your life with me if you want to experience life. But the question is not simply what happened 2,000 years ago. The question is, now how does that relate to us? You can know all you want about that passage, but if it doesn't translate into your life today, I don't know, that information doesn't have as much value, does it? There are three things, I think, three ways that this can speak into our current life and our current context. The first is this. This is a picture about the life-giving power of God. First John, you know, the first chapter of John says that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He comes to bring light and life into the world. We saw that last week, right? Jesus heals an official son, and we see it again today. Jesus says, rise up. Experience the resurrection power, the life-giving power of God. Now, I know that some of you personally have experienced physical healing, 
I've literally talked with a few of you in this room. I personally haven't. So I don't want to speak from that front. I want to speak a little bit from the healing I have experienced. Uh, and I would say it's been a more on the emotional side. And my experience kind of parallels this man's. When I was super broken, I had no idea what I was doing. And the grace of God came, not because I understood who Jesus was, but because God was merciful. God showed up into my place of brokenness and he brought life and he brought healing. Now, I don't know all of your stories and I don't know exactly what you carry into the room today. But one thing I've learned over the last, I don't know, decade or so working with folks uh, with healing is in a room this size, any number of us come in today with wounds that need Jesus' healing touch. It can happen in an abusive family environment growing up. It can happen uh, when you get older as tragedy strikes through illness or death or something else. It can happen at summer camp. It can happen in your home. It can happen to you or it could happen to someone you love. And the thing is, it leaves wounds, and those wounds affect us. And you walk in today, one or two of you, ten of you, a hundred of you walk in this morning, maybe you carry some of those live wounds. Maybe you come in today wishing that Jesus would come and heal you at those deeper spots. And I think Jesus says to you today, do you want to be healed? Now, on one level, I think, you know, it's like, obviously I want to be healed. But if my experience teaches me anything, particularly when it comes to the emotional side of healing, not simply like I want to walk and I can't walk, often actually we leave ourselves, we kind of keep Jesus as a distance. So this is like my story is I think it's easier to keep Jesus at a distance because it is too vulnerable and painful often to let him into those places. My experience is that often we have things that parts of our lives, particularly if we have suffered particularly damaging wounds growing up or in adulthood, we want to keep Jesus as a distance because it is just too scary to actually face those emotions or circumstances again. And I think Jesus says to us today, like, do you trust me to come near into those more vulnerable and tender spots? I know for me, like, that was really hard to do. But it was also the thing that built more intimacy and connection with the person of Jesus than anything else I have ever done. Because one of the things you realize when you let Jesus into those more tender spots is that he is incredibly gentle. He is incredibly kind. He has more loving than you can imagine. Now this morning, you're going to have an opportunity, you know, when we get into worship to receive prayer, and I would invite you to do that. I would invite you, if you feel like you're lonely and isolated in this, uh, meet with someone, someone you trust. Ask them to pray for you. 
If you want to meet with me, I'll meet with you. I, I think that this is one of the ways that God really grows our connection to him. Now, another way I think this passage translates into modern life, I simply am just saying sort of love in the midst of tragedy. What I mean by that is this guy was sitting at a pool for 38 years, and his words are this, no one was there to help me. I'm sorry, but that is an indictment of his society and his community. We are here because we want to practice the way of Jesus. Right? Rabbinic discipleship in the first century was your rabbi was walking, you follow behind him. And there's this awesome phrase. It's you want to walk in the dust of the rabbi. Right? And the idea is you're walking in the desert. He's wearing sandals. So every time he steps, the sandals flick up a little dust. And it gets on your clothes. And you want to be covered in the dust of your rabbi because you're walking so closely to him, right? When we're trying to practice the way of Jesus, it means living like Jesus did. And what did Jesus do in this passage? He went to a place of pain, a place of suffering, a place where no one else would go, and he was willing to go there to offer a helping hand and love in his Father's name. And I guess for us today, I say, who in your life is an outcast, is marginalized, is struggling, is suffering, and needs the healing power of God, needs the friendship and the community of God to help them on their way. Not because they deserved it, because the grace of God is at work in the world. Think about your day. The barista you meet, maybe it's someone in your family, maybe it's someone at work, maybe it's someone on your block. Who is that person? Henry Nowen has this great frame. He says this. He says, you know, Jesus is the healer, and what we are is we're wounded healers sent into the world. We're not perfect. We're broken. But we're supposed to offer the healing that we have received to others who may need it. God gives life-giving power. He invites us to be a loving presence where we are, in the midst of a world that is broken and really hurting. And lastly, I think there's something here that translates into our modern context about sort of sin, the center, and life. Right? We live in a cultural setting that says, you know, the center of life flourishing resides within us. And that what we really need to do is we just need to get in touch with our longings and then say, we're going to live into those longings regardless of what they are. And if we do that, we will experience life. That is the cultural narrative, the frame, the paradigm that we live in. And there's obviously a lot of truth in it. But there's a little tweak here that's important. What we see in the scriptures is that God made us. He loves us. And he actually wants us to flourish. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have give, come to give them life, abundant life. God wants us to live and to thrive. But he also says this. He says, seek first the kingdom. Right? If we go back to centered set, Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle. And the question is not, you know, whether we're, checking all the boxes. The question is, are Jesus is the middle and are we lining our heart and our life with him? Are we moving closer? 
And I think my question for you today is, is Jesus really the center? Or is it something else? You know, sometimes we sort of hear that question and we're like, well, I'm not killing anyone today. It's like, awesome for you, really happy about that. But I don't think that's generally the frame we should approach this from. My experience is, in a congregation like this, at least 95% of the time, it's not that we're doing horrible things, it's that we've substituted good things for the best thing. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, and instead we seek first work, we seek first family, we seek first parenting, we seek first marriage, and those are all good things. God wants us to do all of those. He wants us to work faithfully. He wants us to be really loving to our kids and our spouses. Yes, awesome, but what's first? What's the center? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. Jesus is the center. The kingdom is the center, and out of that flows the life we seek. And I guess for you today is, what are you tempted to put in the center that really doesn't belong there? What is it for you? you know, is, it, is it a hobby? Is it the pressure of work? Is it people's opinions of you and what they think of you? What's your sort of God substitute in that moment to get whatever needs you have at this particular time? We all have them. It's sort of futile to say, oh, I don't have any. It's like everyone does, if we're honest. Now, before we move into worship, and I'm just going to invite the worship team up. Uh, before we move into worship, before you sort of like just feel overwhelmingly guilty and you're just like, oh, you know, remember the man at the pool. God comes to him before he gets his act together, before Jesus is the center, before any of that happens. God sows life and brings grace in his merciful abundance to the man at the pool saying, I want you to thrive before he knows his name. There is so much grace in the heart of God for us. And that's the God we turn to now in worship. A God who wants us to experience life a God who wants us to experience freedom, a God who wants to see us healed in beautiful ways so that we image him in the world and become wounded healers so that we can go into places where God's gospel and life and power can speak volumes and transform lives. Now, during worship, we're gonna have an opportunity where you can pray or be prayed for if you just feel like, whew, this is a little beyond me, you know? You need some help with prayer, we'll pray for you. If you want to worship God with the offering of sort of out of the abundance of what God has given you, there's little boxes on that back row. You can worship him with the giving of your resources. In the end, I just offer and invite you to worship him by giving him your life. We're going to sing a song about the reckless love of God. That's my prayer that you would be able to embrace that love for you this morning. I think wants to go deeper and touch places in you. Maybe you haven't allowed God access to. Let's just pray together. Jesus, you are good. You are beautiful. You are the one who brings life into our lives. But God, we get tripped up all the time and we ask in this morning 
that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us, give us wisdom, that we would know our right from our left. You would know, we would know your true north from what we think it might be. God, come. Show us the extent of your love and grace and mercy. God, that we could be transformed from the inside out. That our world would never be the same as this group, this small group is launched from this place into their lives. And your love, like a fragrance, follows us wherever we go. Come, Holy Spirit.